this week on the Back Table Podcast. But I think those things would have never happened. And I never would have, 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 have had a chance to, to be successful if I hadn't learned a tremendous about how to fail. And people, as I said, look at Shockwave and they say, oh, it, it ultimately went public and IPO is doing well. There was many failures along the way. I mean, a Shockwave was a, was a experience of over 10 years from the time we found wow. out it time at IPO. And there were many times where it was up and down. It felt we couldn't raise money. We spent the first uh, year and a half, we couldn't raise a dime. So I think that you know, if, you, if you're gonna go in and, and looking for success as an entrepreneur, you better be prepared for failure. You're looking for hopefully that one success out of many, many failures. And you just gotta learn from them and, and understand that that's, that's the norm. Failure is the norm, success is rare. And be, and be able to kind of pick yourself up when, when, when those things happen, because it's hard. <laughs> I remember it very well and continue to. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. So I'm an IR, currently in Silicon Valley, working on an early stage medtech company in the pulmonary space. Started out of the Stanford Biodesign Fellowship. I've been fortunate to have several great mentors in med tech, and one of those is our first guest. Todd's an interventional cardiologist, successful med tech entrepreneur. He's founded several companies, and most recently, uh, that was Shockwave. Shockwave is a pioneer in intravascular lithotripsy. He recently transitioned from faculty at Stanford to Edwards Life Sciences as vice president of advanced technologies and also chief scientific officer. Todd is also the former fellowship director of the Stanford Biodesign Program. So Todd, it is great to have you and we really appreciate you coming on the show. So with that, we will dive right in. Talk about some of your early years when you were just getting to Stanford or before you decided. I know you were a biomedical engineer working in medical devices before deciding on medical school and your path took you to Stanford for training. So Briefly, can you, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended at Stanford and maybe some of the, uh, the role that uh, mentors played in your decision? Yeah, thanks, uh, Brian. So I, I too, I think have to attribute uh, much of, of much of the opportunities I, I've had to mentors. So it, it probably goes back even before, before I ever was introduced to Stanford. Coming out of, out of high school, going to college, I ended up at UC San Diego for biomedical engineering, as you mentioned. A great, a great program. And, and really, uh, you know, I was very interested in, in the biological sciences, but I came from a family of, of engineers, father, grandfather, no one was a doctor. And so biomedical engineer became kind of the target for uh, my training. But when I finished college, I was very, very fortunate to get started with an early stage uh, company and got introduced to uh, Tony Demaria, who is, who was that time was the chief of cardiology at UCSD. And had been actually the youngest president of the American College of Cardiology a couple of years before that. And he just was, well, first of all, he was tough. <laughs> and, and second, he was a huge influence on me and just the idea of, of innovation, just how you could bring medicine and engineering together. And so it ultimately was him that, that uh, you know, had pushed and said, I really think you should consider going to medical school. And ultimately it was him that, that felt that the combination of skills of, uh, the work I did with him as an engineer, when I was in industry working as an engineer, 
and the decision to go back to medical school, you know, really pushed and said, this is, if you want to do this, this is, this is a track for you. When I finished medical school, I actually planned to go back to UCSD. I was going to go back to, to UCSD and, uh, hopefully be a resident where Tony was, but he actually was really sincere and said, what are you really interested in? And, uh, I said, I was really interested in it and, you know, inter interventional cardiology and interventional technologies. And he said that the two best guys out there in the world are Paul Yock and Peter Fitzgerald. And both of them were at Stanford. And that was the reason I ended up at Stanford was, um, it was a great program, but it was kind of the, the fact that Stanford was a collection of so many of the best of the best in, in so many different areas. And, and frankly, there was a, a personal connection. I'd always wanted to be at Stanford. And my grandfather went to Stanford. I used to go to Stanford football games with my, with my grandfather years ago. And so the two, the two things came together and I was fortunate enough to match actually at Stanford for residents. Oh, that's great. And you mentioned Paul Yock and for context, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about, about him and his, his legacy and why it was so important for you to be there with somebody like him. Yeah. I mean, Paul is one of the great innovators. I mean, an innovator in interventional cardiology, an innovator who really not just you know, brought technologies to medicine, but a guy who really inspired other people. So much you know, like really the first mentor I'd had, it, at least in, in medicine, Tony Demaria, Paul became really that, that influence for me. When I got to, to, to Stanford, in fact, I tried to get an appointment with Paul when I first got it, or he said, Hey, you should connect with Paul Yock if you're there. And I couldn't, I was like, I was pushed off by like four or five months. And, and luckily Tony called Paul and said, you know, why don't you sit down with him? And, and uh, the minute I met Paul, he was just this great inspiration. He was a uh, thoughtful, creative guy who actually is not an engineer, but probably knows more engineering than most of the engineers mm -hmm. put together that I know. He was, he was not trained as an engineer, a physician. And, you know, he came up with ideas and tried to solve problems. And so mm -hmm. him as an example, as an innovator and really an inspiration to uh, my career, I kind of found someone that you kind of wanted to be like. So he was an in, interventional cardiologist and I aspired to be what he was. And so along with being uh, a practitioner, interventional cardiologist and an entrepreneur, he was also starting biodesign when I arrived in 2000 and he was also a couple of years later founding the department of bioengineering at Stanford. So among all these things, we had a lot in common. So he became a big animal. Yeah. You both became very successful innovators. And I know Dr. Yock, he invented the rapid exchange for, for our endovascular specialists out there and also pioneered IVIS. So some pretty, pretty big technologies. And that's a, that's a great mentor to have, I imagine, especially starting out. Now, when you got to Stanford, did you immediately jump into starting companies or, or how did that play out? Yeah. So I was fortunate, as I said, I connected with Paul, uh, interviewed with him and I actually, uh, two things were happening at the same time. So I was an internal medicine resident. Uh, I was an intern, uh, when I got there in 2000 and he, he there's the program short tracking which is the clinical investigator pathway where you do two years of residency and then longer fellowship, which is exists in a few programs across the country. I was a candidate. So I interviewed for that program. And in fact, short track into that program and Paul was my advisor. So I, as I was doing that at the same time, he said, well, I've got this project to work on uh, a company that I've been involved in starting. Would you like to work on it? And, you know, probably five or six months into my internship. I was working on the, the first company with Paul 
doing some of the the fundamental animal work and uh, working with a team of outside engineers. So it was pretty quick that I jumped in and started working on uh, new technologies. And it was, you know, it was the coolest thing in the world. Problem was that I was still an intern. So, you know, I was working during the day, during the night and being on call and, you know, on those days off that you feel that you had or the evenings were the times that you were, you know, working on a project. But, you know, I think most people realize that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, an innovator, it's not going to usually be through nine to five. It's going to take a lot more than that. So that was, a, that was a pretty quick lesson. Oh, I can imagine that, you know, residency and fellowship are no easy, not a lot of free time there. Uh, so what was life like balancing kind of your practice and, and the companies that you were starting at that time? So it, it was demanding. I mean, it was, um, and, and I would say that that was the case all the way through my career as a, as a physician. So up to the time that I, I left the starting of, uh, 2019 and I left Stanford, which was a really tough decision, something I didn't foresee, but it was, um, I, I would say that I, I really enjoyed the portfolio in a sense, the idea of being in practice and taking care of patients, being able to directly impact a patient. I was doing a case that day. But I also was seeing some new ideas or thinking about what the problems I was trying to solve, being able to work and research, being able to teach some of the new ideas. And then at the last, I tried to try to develop new things. So it allowed me to do think, different things all the time as, as opposed to feel like I was stuck doing one thing. The challenge, as he said, was that he needed to do all those things, you know, in, in a, a complete way. So you need to make sure that you were covering your patients, that you were there for them, that you were on call at night. At the same time, you wanted to, to give as much energy you could to the ideas you had and, and the companies you were working on. So I would say being spread thin was probably an understatement and something that yeah. Yeah, to this day, I look back and think, wow, geez, well, no, that was a, that was a tough stretch. I can imagine. So there are only so many hours in the day. When did you work on your company? I assume as a practicing interventional cardiologist, residency fellowship and beyond that, that took up a lot of your time. So when did you find yourself? thinking about ideas and when did you actually have time to set aside some time for, for the, for these ideas? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think you're thinking all the time. I think that, you know, being in, in, in the lab, meaning that in the cath lab or being in the clinic with patients gives you an opportunity to frame what you're thinking about as a, and not just about solutions that that wasn't where I spent the majority of my time, actually, you know, I would say that I was not, I'm not a great inventor. That's mm -hmm. not one of my strengths. And so people would say, well, wait a minute, how can you be innovation if you're not a great inventor? And I often would team up with other folks uh, or some of the inventions I was involved with were not super, super novel. I spent most of my time trying to identify where there was really big problems and, you know, trying to really understand not just that it was a problem, but who was a problem for and what situation segment it was big enough to actually uh, make an impact. And that's why I think, you know, my training at Stanford and, and ultimately training as a biodesign fellow that was later at Stanford before I, I finished my training was, you know, worked for me because it, it was a very intuitive that trying to understand the problems as opposed to trying to, to jump to a solution really probably built a better foundation for ultimately breakthrough technologies. And I realize that seems counterintuitive, but the more you really understand the problem, the better chance you actually have of hitting it right. And there's just a lot of inventions out there that people come up with that don't fit. They're brilliant ideas. And, you know, there's, there's some great patents and, you know, there's a huge, huge supply of patents out there that don't necessarily you know, belong to commercialized products. And so the real question was using the time I had in the lab and with patients to try and better understand 
problems. And, you know, Shockwave was a good example. It was a, it was a specific problem that I was struggling in the cath lab, Rayo, trying to deal with heavy calcium in, in patients, particularly in the older populations, the, the VA population, which I spent some time at both the university hospital and the VA hospital, that was kind of like, the, there's gotta be a better way. And, uh, you know, what would be a better way and who really has this problem? And, and, mm-hmm. um, I think that that time inspired me now working on the project itself. Yeah, it was, it was nice. It was, um, I used to go down, we had some space set up in Sunnyvale and rented a space. And so when I was done with the day, done doing patients and operating, I would, uh, go down to the office. I took my daughter actually at the time who was five or six and she'd color in the corner and I'd work on, you know, lab setup or, or, uh, trying to test some of the work with an engineer, but that the direct testing was probably not as important. I think as more of the kind of the strategy and understanding what we were trying to solve. No, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like you definitely uh, had to sacrifice time somewhere to be able to do all of this. Now, I'd love to hear some of your early challenges. Maybe if there were any failures that you learned from, especially as it relates to maybe Shockwave and fundraising that, that really helped you along the way that you think looking back actually made you progress further than you would have had you not had those experiences. Yeah. So uh, Shockwave was not my first company. I had started two companies before Shockwave and yeah, they were incredibly uh, influential in, in, in probably the success of Shockwave. And the first one was a company I started out of, out of my biodesign fellowship when I was still an interventional fellow at Stanford. And it was, it was, you know, I learned a little bit about, uh, intellectual property. And so I'd filed some patent ideas that I had and I'd worked with a, an outside uh, for my work with Wilson Sonsini and drafting up some of the patents. And ultimately they published some competitive patents, probably a couple of weeks uh, before mine were filed. Incredibly like, oh my God, this is just, and, and I ran up quite a bill <laughs> and, you know, there was no, there was really no path at that stage. There was no path to kind of build anything or create anything. And so at the same time, I was very, that's actually how I got to know Casey McGlint, who was, became my attorney for all, all the companies I worked on. And he said, look, you know, we're just going to write this off. And I thought I was done. I thought I owe this, you know, law firm this money that they had floated for me. And, and, uh, but luckily he said, you know, all I ask is you bring your next idea. And I did bring the next wow. idea. That one got, that one got funded by DeNovo Ventures. That was BioParadox, a company that I, I worked on with Alan Mischer. We co-founded together. Unfortunately, that wasn't successful either. That was a technology and peripheral vascular disease, and it was for treatment of claudication. It was a biotherapeutic device and a uh, really interesting work. A lot of the work based on uh, work Alan Mishra had done in angiogenesis and on platelet-rich plasma. We called the device and system. You know, we had kind of worked our way through it. I ultimately met Jay Watkins, who was at Denovo Ventures, who was the lead investor and sat on our board. And I would say that there's no way that I would have, what I, what I learned through that experience that I ever would have had even a shot in a million years of shockwave if I hadn't learned that many experiences from Jay. And ultimately Jay became a board member at shockwave and actually became executive chairman for a period of time. So again, you get back to mentors, the small world out there, people who are incredibly influential in your career, you know, Jay was another one, much like not a clinician, a, uh, very successful entrepreneur and, and uh, executive who ultimately, you know, I learned a lot of lessons from. So yeah, they don't always work. You know, IP was a big lesson. I think execution and understanding how to put an operating plan together, 
kind of the, the challenges of doing, you know, preclinical uh, work and the reality of timelines, you know, kind of being realistic about how you put together what your expectations are for funding, how to raise money, how to you know, put together a pitch. All those things were parts of those early experiences. And, you know, people look now at, at Shockwave in particular, which, you know, I could not be happier and, and more excited about just the impact that I think it'll have for patients, both uh, peripherally and hopefully we'll see it's, it, if it's, uh, it's pending, hopefully an approval in the United States for coronary. But I think those things would have never happened. And I never would have, 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 have had a chance to, to be successful if I hadn't learned a tremendous about how to fail. And people, as I said, look at Shockwave and they say, oh, it, it ultimately went public and IPO is doing well. There was many failures along the way. I mean, a Shockwave was, it was a experience of over 10 years from the time we found wow. out at time at IPO. And there were many times where it was up and down. It felt we couldn't raise money. We spent the first uh, year and a half, we couldn't raise a dime. It was the 2008 market crash. We couldn't raise money wow. from anyone. We ultimately got a little bit of, of, of friends and family money and kind of housed it. And then we're very fortunate to get some good data and some great people around the table because, you know, a lot of people looked at it and said, yeah, no, this, this isn't interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it also comes down to that thing. It comes down to luck. It, mm-hmm. It's definitely hard work. We put a lot of hard work, but it, it was luck too. So I think that, you know, if you, if you're going to go in and, and looking for success as an entrepreneur, you better be prepared for failure because there's going to be a lot more failure than it's going to be success. You're looking for hopefully that one success out of many, many failures. And you just got to learn from them and, and understand that that's, that's the norm. Failure is the norm. Success is rare. And be, and be able to kind of pick yourself up when, when, when those things happen, because it's hard. <laughs> I remember it very well and continue to. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great advice. Now, speaking about Shockwave, you, you touched on that and it's a huge success now, I would say, definitely impacting the lives of patients around the world. What is, for our, our listeners who aren't aware of Shockwave, what, what is the device? What was the concept and the clinical need you were going for? Yeah, so we were really trying to, and this was myself, Daniel Hawkins, and John Adams, the three of us founded together Shockwave. And, and interestingly, much the model that we uh, we created and, and thought about at Stanford was a, a diverse model, of clinician, an engineer, and a, and a business executive. That was the three of us. The, the problem we were trying to solve was the fact that, you know, the dilatation of a calcified vessel ultimately equated to either you drilling through the calcium, perforating the vessel or tearing it. And so traditional angioplasty, a balloon as it dilated would uh, tear the vessel and, and you were really not treating calcium with the balloon. You were just treating the tissue, uh, where the softest part of the vessel was calcium's not going to, not going to crack. It's just going to tear. And so you were often getting dissections and perforations as a result. And so we were thinking, well, how do we overcome that? And really, you know, it was, it was Daniel and John who came up with the idea and said, well, what about, you know, how do we deal with calcium and other parts of the body with the trips, but used to break mm-hmm. up kidney stones. And the question then became, well, how do we, how do we find a way to move lithotripsy into the peripheral vessels? And that, that really was a question of not just whether you could actually move it, but deliverability. Could you actually get the energy? And so we had this idea, which was. We want to be able to have something that was as flexible as a balloon because we had showed them data on the fact that most balloons in most of the trials, peripheral or coronary, can get to most lesions about 99% of the time. Front end flexible, not stiff balloons, but 
semi-compliant or really compliant balloons. And I wanted to ch somehow change magically when we got it there and now become this, this tool that was, uh, capable of, of overcoming calcium. And then it was just kind of an aha moment that this idea of harmonics, the fact that you would kind of use a ball peen hammer to crack the calcium, like you would crack an eggshell, like you crack it on, you know, the side of the, the, the kitchen table when you're trying to, to fix breakfast, that it was, it was not constant pressure that was going to overcome the calcium. It was going to be momentum that was going to crack the calcium. And then it would require a lot less pressure to dilate. And those two things together became kind of the spec for, uh, for shockwave. That's very interesting. I, I guess I'm always interested to hear of innovations that are translated or maybe taken in, in whole or in part from another use or even another specialty and brought in and modified. And there seems to be a lot of success with that. You mentioned shockwave take using the idea of lithotripsy for kidney stones and bringing that into the cardiovascular space. You know, there's other ideas with Josh Macauer taking balloon angioplasty and using that for the sinuses to open up the sinuses. Of course, balloon angioplasty was used for kyphoplasty as well. And, you know, do you see that often that a technology or a technique or a concept that was used in another specialty kind of adapted for, for use in a different area? Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's that many novel new platforms for solutions, mm -hmm. to be honest. I think that, um, again, getting back to the fact of what, what Josh Macauer's observation was about trying to dilate the sinuses or potentially to lift in a bone within kyphoplasty to be able to actually put some material behind it. It was all kind of those, those were really understanding that patient population, what the problem was. The novelty wasn't necessarily the, the absolute solution. Now the solution was, was different, right? It was a modification of the principle. And, you know, one of the technical challenges at Shockwave was really finding a way to miniaturize and create flexibility and how do you know, how do you create lithotripsy? Lithotripsy is actually really dirty from a fundamental principle. It's just these harmonics and being able to actually make it very reproducible, consistent, but also doing that in a way that didn't potentially rupture the balloon because you have this, these high pressure pulses that potentially could compromise the balloon. So I think there was, you know, uh, there is, there's, there's each time there's some incredible innovation that's going on to the solution, but the core technology, whether it's a balloon or whether it's lithotripsy, I think it's more important really understanding the problem you're trying to solve a segment of who it might work. And, you know, you could have the best uh, idea for invention, but you know, if it doesn't potentially apply to the way the deliverability of that particular problem, it's not going to work. And so I think, you know, being real disciplined about really understanding, you know, we call an, a need spec, what in a sense, the need really needs to accomplish it. And all of us, you know, find ourselves saying kind of minimizing that at times, like we don't really have to have something. You know, I say all the time to the time, the team that I have now at Edwards, which is the market doesn't lie. The market's the market. Right. And so we, we're the ones, we lie to ourselves sometimes and we think, oh, this is the way it'll work, you know? And then we kind of wonder, we get the market, why it didn't, you know, the market's the market. It's going to take up what it sees and what it fits, particularly for patients and for providers and for the system. So I do see there's a tremendous amount of translation from one platform to another. There's always incredible innovation in the way that it's transformed, but fundamentally, uh, I believe that it's, it's really on the need side that actually the deep learning needs to happen. Mm. 
And that brings me to, I'd love to hear a little bit about when you were fellowship director at Biodesign. Love to hear a little bit about the biodesign process for our listeners and maybe about uh, one or two of the successful companies that came out of that. And if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so biodesign was the, uh, the brainchild of both Paul Yock and Josh Macauer. Josh, a very successful entrepreneur, engineer, clinician, business person. And then Paul, obviously very successful academic professor who had been initially at UCSF and, and came down to Stanford, as we said, it started Rapid Exchange and IBIS. The two of them came together and said, you know, there's an opportunity here to try and teach innovation in a much more structured way. Now, Paul had been very fortunate to have several mentors himself, John Simpson, the founder of ACS and, and Perclose, a number of other companies and Tom Fogarty. And so he said, you know, this shouldn't be just by chance you happen to find the right mentor which we, I think we both, we both agree is huge in, in people's mm -hmm. careers, but there's gotta be a way we could bring more people together. And it really resonated with Stanford's mission to train people. And then it was, you know, for me, I was there during the early years. I started actually as a fellow, the, the third or fourth year of the program. And then Josh was the fellowship director at the time. Paul was the director. And then Josh was working at the time, a Clarent. And a Clarent was growing at a rate that, that he needed to spend his time on a Clarent. And, and I think another company too was starting at the same time. And so I was given the opportunity when I finished my fellowship and was joined the faculty at Stanford to try and fill those big shoes. And it was, it was a big leap. I have to say a big step up. Josh is a very successful, uh, very, you know, creative and, and innovative guy as is Paul, but you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a really fantastic journey. I was the uh, fellowship director for 14 years. And ultimately it was a great opportunity to grow the program. We grew it from four fellows to, to I think 12, 15, we had an international program. We have uh, an executive ed education program for companies. Now we have programs that are set up for faculty at Stanford and outside faculty. So it's grown, but it's all, as you suggested, built on this principle, which is needs driven innovation. So, and that's not, that's not unique to biodesign. But I think it's a, it's a, a very methodical and disciplined approach to needs-driven innovation as opposed to tech push innovation, both of them very successful ways to innovate. But this idea that it's not just about basic discovery of a technology, but more really starting with a need and probably unique to medical technologies, probably not so applicable to pharma and, and biotech as much, but for healthcare technologies, whether they are you know, in the, in the um, medical device space or necessarily in medical records or, or, or mobile technologies, I think very applicable to understanding your patient population, who you're trying to, to approach. But as I said, it's a disciplined approach. And we, you know, we had fellows that were there as, as you know, you were a fellow uh, and spent time that have all gone off and done, you know, really impressive things. And in fact, we had a lot of companies the goal was not to form companies at Biodesign. The goal is to train the next generation of innovators. But if you do that well, you're going to, at, at, in the times right, and they're working on real problems, you're going to find some companies come out as a, as a byproduct of that. And in fact, companies like iRhythm, that is public as well, has been you know, an incredible, uh, successful company. And there's been uh, several companies that have been acquired. Allergan acquired one of the Oculeve technologies and, and, uh, and developed it and launched it. So... You know, there's some that are small, there's some that are large uh, or larger, I should say, but it also takes time. And so, you know, biodesign has been around 19 years now. It takes time, as I said, with Shockwave, 10 years 
it takes time to develop technologies and get them out there. So we're just, you know, we're, we're now seeing kind of the, the impact of, of a process that is now yielding lots of different talent, lots of people that are either entrepreneurs or are at big companies or physician innovators like yourself that are starting to have their impact on the world and on patients. And so, you know, it's interesting to, to, to be part of that and, and, and watch it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. We had a, a great time during the fellowship and learned a ton about innovation. Do you, do you recommend some of our listeners, if they're practicing physicians, that they, if they're obviously want to be innovators and would like to learn a methodical process-driven approach that they consider the fellowship? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that, you know, Stanford is the premier program. I don't, I think that's most would believe that, that that's the case through the teaching processes, textbooks and, and, uh, seminars and such, but there are other programs that are out there and there's a number of programs that have started. And I think that whatever you do, I think getting some training and innovation, it, it's, again, it's not an accident, it's a process. Um, so a lot of people think that, you know, being an, an innovator is the same as being a great inventor, that it's kind of a, an aha moment in the shower. And it's, you know, there are people that have great aha moments in the shower, but, but those are few and far between. It's a process of trying to understand in clinicians in particular and engineers and business people are around it all the time if in the med tech space. And so, you know, the opportunity to, to get that training, to think a little bit differently about approaching problems, I would encourage anybody to do, whether it's formally taking the time to go into a program or whether it's just doing some, you know, some reading on your own or, or getting in contact and understanding and, and really trying to, to, to change a little bit the way you approach innovation. Yeah. And the biodesign process is, is fundamentally needs driven. So making sure you really understand the, the clinical need before trying to solve it, as you mentioned. Now, there are probably uh, a number of things you've learned by teaching physicians and engineers over the years. Common, common pitfalls, maybe, when, when you're trying to innovate. What are some common pitfalls that you often see clinicians make when going through the fellowship, whether it's you know, miscalculating or not evaluating market size? What, did, what do you see there? So I, I would say, I mean, there's a number of them, but, and, and they're not in any particular order, but what comes to mind, particularly about clinicians is their, their dependence on dogma. Remember medicine's experiential. Most of what we learn as practitioners is taught to us as someone who came before us. And so whether that's how to potentially do access in a vascular procedure, you know, or how to sit with a patient and, and have a discussion is, is taught through the training process. And so the dogma that gets created is it necessarily based on a reality? It's not even based on science or mechanism. Sometimes it's that was someone thought it was the best way to do it at that time and we carry it forward. And so I, I think that disrupting medicine, disrupting for the benefit of patients and moving it forward also means challenging dogma. And so I, that's the, uh, that's how it's done type of, uh, yeah. attitude. That's how it's always been done. Right. That's the way we do it. Cause that's the way it's always been done. And I think clinicians fall into that trap when they're looking and say, well, no, we, this is the way we do it. And they move on, but there's no other way to challenge kind of the traditional ways that we approach them. So for clinicians, I think it would be dogma engineers. It's, you know, often the fact that they need all the boundary conditions to approach a problem. And so they don't want to really commit to a solution until they know all the boundary conditions. And in reality, we never know all the boundary conditions. And so, you know, I, it's interesting comparing and contrasting physicians and engineers because Physicians have to make decisions with incomplete information all the time. Engineers really want to have the full, understandably, it's part of our training. 
that we want to have the full spec of boundary conditions to, to jump to a, to, to a conclusion. And so pushing people to make decisions with incomplete information. And then as you learn more adapt and pivot, that's something that that's, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. And I think that if you take on among clinicians and engineers, I would say that the, the biggest predictor in my mind of success, and I say this a lot to my teams now at Edwards is the ability to pivot, to read the data objectively and make a decision to shift and pivot. And sometimes the data is not complete. But as opposed to saying, I can continue to push the big rock up a hill, despite all the, the data that's coming at, you know, I, I see people look at different pathways, you know, often we're trying to develop a, a system for doing A, B, or C, and it's not working mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. data, like it's not going to work and everyone has the idea we're somehow going to have a breakthrough that's going to make it work as opposed to saying to yourself, wait a minute, let's go back and look at, do we, do we really need to go this direction? And if this is not going to work, can we accomplish it some other way? Now, how often did you see fellows pivot during your time as fellowship director? I think that, that I would say all the time. <laughs> I okay. think that, you know, we push them sometimes on projects. We let them move along until it was very clear that it wasn't going to go any farther. And what was, in, was impressive is watching people come to that conclusion on their own at different rates for different people that they, that they need to shift. But I think that sometimes when the project is your project, when you, when it's your baby, we're not as objective. We think that, no, I've got to get this to work this way. It's got, it's my, it's my vision. It's, it's the way it's got to go. And we don't sometimes open our mind to the fact that there might be other ways to approach it. You know, it's, it's an adage in, in investing that ventures, investors do all the time is that venture investors don't invest in, in, in technologies that invest in teams. And you say, yeah, that's not really true. But, but I actually think the really good ones do. I think the good investors say, yeah, do you have an idea of a great technology, but what's the team behind it? Because they know it's never going to go exactly like you think it's going to go. And teams that have experience and that are creative um, and are multidisciplinary, find a way to work around those bumps that happen along the way and pivot along the way to get to ultimately a solution. And that solution often looks nothing like the solution you thought it would have been at the beginning. And so I think it's inherent to real successful innovation that you are open to pivoting. And so I think it's no different if you look at it from the entrepreneur side is if I'm going to be successful, I've got to learn to be someone that is comfortable with the unknown sometimes. And at the same time, knows how to pivot when objective data comes my way so that I can ultimately take the project or the need that I'm trying to solve to success. Hmm. Now that makes a lot of sense. And tell me, for the for physicians and engineers out there, if they have an idea already, I know we talk about biodesign, make sure you have the unmet need and that it's well vetted before you go solving it. But a lot of physicians might have ideas already. Do you recommend uh, that they file intellectual property when they have an idea? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, uh, absolutely. So I think we, we, we've moved from in the U.S., and this is the way Europe was before, from a first to file as opposed to first to invent. So it used to be if you wrote something down in a notebook and dated it and, and started to reduce it to practice, the dates of the invention were the dates actually of the idea. Now it's actually moved to first to file. And so if you're sitting there with an idea in your head and or in a notebook, it's not really relevant as it comes to being a protected idea until you actually file it. And so as a result, I think before you go talking to other people, particularly before you present it, if you're a clinician, an academic, you need to make sure that you file 
that idea and finding the provisional is really easy. It's, you know, you can draw your idea out. There's not a form. It doesn't have to have claims. It doesn't require an attorney uh, to file it. And you can file it with the USPTO for a little over a hundred bucks. So I would absolutely encourage before you go talking to other people and particularly before you talk to investors or, or a company to make sure that you file. And, and in the role that I have now at Edwards, I look at technology outside. It's one of my major roles outside the company. Things we're looking at constantly. And I encourage all the time when we're talking to entrepreneurs, make sure you file stuff before we meet. Make sure it's all good to protect that because it's not going to be good in the long run if there's some debate or some debate of who, whose idea was this or where was it done. It's much easier if it's cleaner. Right. And that's so important to understand that, that it's a first to file system uh, and also that a disclosure can be even a academic disclosure, a disclosure giving a, a small a presentation can be a mean a disclosure that might invalidate a patent down the road. Now, in your role at Edwards now, you're interacting, I assume, with physicians and, and engineers when you're evaluating new technologies. What else do you recommend besides having IP? W- what do you like to see from, from somebody who's, coming, who's come up with a great idea and they want to come to you and, and, and see what the interest is from a strategic like Edwards? So, yeah, I, I think that it's all in, uh, really well laying out. I mean, filing your, uh, a provisional for the idea, the concept that you have for the solution, I think is really important, but it's only a small piece, uh, of the puzzle. And ultimately I think what, what most, uh, investors or strategics are looking for is your understanding of what problem you're trying to solve, how big the problem is, who it affects and why you think the concept that you have will make it different. Why will it change the outcome? And, and what's the value of that outcome being different? So, you know, I think often it's putting together that, that we get approached and we see people at different stages who'll say, we've got a great, you know, great idea for a solution, but we have no idea what the applicability of it is. And I think there's this idea that, that strategy doesn't matter who it is, has, they, they, they're all knowing and know where all these things go and, and we don't. And so now I have a team that, that evaluates outside things that are going on at universities, they're going on among KOLs that they're going on in small startups and in and, and larger uh, organizations. And so I would say that the, the groups that are most successful in engaging and, and really relaying what their ideas are to anyone, but particularly to me is someone who comes and says, look, this is the problem I'm trying to solve. This is the population this is, and this is the outcome that I think is, you know, suboptimal and how, what I want to change. And I think it's, 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 there's value in changing, not just to patients, but typically also to the system. And if you can articulate those things with your concept, I think you're off to a very good start. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned, and that's that's biodesign process there, correct? It, it is, but I think it's inherent to all, you know, just just to good uh, your ability to articulate. And you you may remember this, uh, Brian, when we were when you were a fellow. I said, you know, mm-hmm. when you're presenting to somebody, whether it's a potential person to join your team, an investor, a strategic, if if you're unable to relay what the the problem in population and outcome is, then it's your failure, not theirs, right? We've got to, you've got to elevate and, and, and provide enough knowledge of what problem you're trying to solve. Because sometimes in a sense, we want to solve these unmet, these unmet needs because they're unmet means you're not always familiar to. And so providing this background of understanding and then your concept, that usually is what gets people excited. It's what inspires them to say, whoa, this person's got a brilliant kind of approach. It's not just the idea for the concept. It's the whole thing that they're looking at. 
right? And you mentioned population. And I think often I think of market size as something that clinicians can sometimes miss on. I know I definitely did before I joined the Biodesign Fellowship, how to accurately evaluate a market and how important is that to you now where, where you sit? It's critical. I mean, I think that, uh, that we see concepts all the time, but really understanding the, the population and, and usually it's a segment of the population. I mean, I think the assumption we all make is that you have a silver, the silver bullet or the great solution that solves it for everyone. So if you're trying to solve peripheral vascular disease, you're trying to solve aortic stenosis, or you're trying to, to, to you know, to solve, you know, surgical site infection, it doesn't matter that, that your thing is going to solve it for everybody. And the reality everyone knows is that's just not possible. You're not going to solve it for everybody. You're going to solve it usually for a segment of that particular population that it's not one size fits all. And so really understanding who, who is unmet, what group is not getting adequate results and, and potentially having complications or poor efficacy and why, and then trying to then see how your concepts fits that. And does it show investors or strategics that you really understand the market that you're in? If you can segment it down, you don't just come out and say, I'm going to cure cancer or all peripheral vascular disease is going to be attainable with this device. I think you gain a lot of credibility when you walk through an understanding of the market. And when you say market, I think there's some confusion. We're talking about patients. Mm-hmm. Number of patients that have that particular problem, that subset that are unmet or unaccessed, your, your office is talking about the dollars that go along with it, but I think it starts with the number of patients. And I think there's this, this concern that there's not going to be enough patients. Like if you go through that and say, well, it's not everybody, that it's not going to be as exciting an opportunity. But I would say the, the opposite is, is the reality. If you really understand a segment where there's an opportunity, no matter how big that segment is, where there's real impact in that segment, then there, there's going to be that kind of enthusiasm. So the question is not just the number of patients that are in that segment, but the impact you could have on that segment and the impact as follows improvement of survival, you know, hospitalization, costs. And so it doesn't have to be a huge group to be really interesting. Obviously, people love big markets, but the idea of big markets doesn't always mean big numbers of patients. There are great examples of segments and areas of disease where there is so much cost associated with a segment of a population that if you could tackle even a subsegment of that population mm. and, and provide a solution, it would have a huge impact on patient care, patients' lives, at the same time, reduce costs in the system. And I, and I say that, I, that last thing, reduce costs, I think, we're, you know, to think that we're going to develop something that's going to be better for patients that cost more, it's a non-starter general these days. You have to find a way to actually align both cost and benefit to patients. And so there's got to be an improvement to patient with some, you know, with, with some cost savings. And I say it may not be cost savings immediately. It may actually be more expensive, but in the long run, provide value. So you provide something that lasts a lot longer. You provide a, a treatment as opposed to a drug they have to take for the rest of their life. The cumulative impact of value is actually better. And so you've got to be thinking about how to align that benefit, not just say, well, this is better for patients. And I think that's another trap that clinicians get into sometimes, which is, but this is going to be better for patients. And it seems like it's wrong to not have something be taken up, but it's better for patients, but it costs more. And it's going to be, I think that the bar is, is, is risen. It's going to be harder to get over that bar. It's got to be better for patients, but it's also got to deliver more value to the system. 
Mm. Yeah, healthcare economic value has has definitely entered the spotlight recently. And I, I do think a lot of physicians are seeing that on their end, whether they're practicing and using a less expensive catheter for the hospital, or they're finding that maybe insurance isn't covering a more expensive option. I think it's, it's very important to understand the landscape, especially around insurance. You know, a lot of physicians think that, uh, especially if you're trying to get a device approved and out to market, a lot of physicians like myself beforehand, I would think if you have a great idea, you go to the FDA, you get it approved, you run your studies, and then you're ready to go to market. But in reality, there are many more hurdles after that, after you get approval, regulatory approval, and that is convincing insurance companies to cover the device. And have you guys at Edwards or in your time, have you seen challenges in that area? <laughs> Daily. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the, the, the challenge, it, the, the complexity of developing a medical technology for patients, it's a, it's a long road and it's not, you know, the, the unmet need, uh, a really novel concept, the development of progression of clinical trials and, and early and, and late pivotals to getting to potentially a regulatory approval and then working with the payer systems to see the value in that for the population and getting their approval and support and how much support you get and what the reimbursement is and the dynamic, how it might be changing over time. Those are the challenges that, that I would say that any med tech group faces daily. And so I think that, you know, particularly, you know, Edwards, you mentioned an decision I, I, I made to, to leave Stanford, a difficult one. You know, I, I, I love Stanford. I love being part of it. I've still, I've still been part of it peripherally was that was just the challenge we're talking about to do that on a larger scale, to take technologies and uh, develop them, get them through the regulatory and the payment to really get them out to a uh, patient care in a highly impacted area of structural heart disease and critical care. And so, you know, I, I think that these are being able to then learn and build on some of the experiences I had as an entrepreneur and doing it now with the, uh, probably a larger team that I had before and a more diverse team, real specialists in regulatory and reimbursement and cost effectiveness. These are all the same pieces that you need to have and understand. And, and the reason for the move to Edwards was the chance to do it on a, on a, on a much more impactful scale. And to do it to hopefully for a, a large number of patients in big unmet clinical needs. That's great. And looking back to kind of close it out here, would you do it all again? Everything you've gone through, the early failures, the challenges, the late nights, would you do it all again? Yeah, I, mean, I definitely do it all again. But, you know, it, it's hard to, to probably put into words. It, it, it's a journey and there are a lot of ups and downs. And I think you have to kind of really, really be in love with it and be in love with patients. I think that all the great, you know, medical device technology innovators, whether it's, you know, John Simpson, uh, Julio Pomaz versus Dan, Paul Yock, uh, all these people were driven and inspired by the impact they could have on medicine. There is, I think, this misconception that people, you know, they did it because they were interested in building companies. And, and I think companies are just a vehicle along the way to get the technologies. The, the great ones, I think, are inspired by the potential to make big impact. And so you have to, you ha have to want to have that big impact to kind of get through the ups and downs because there's going to be failure. And I said, there's going to be a lot of it. And we say it all the time, you know, you fail often and fail fast and you drive to failure sometimes to eliminate that so you can move in a different direction, test an idea, get it to failure and pivot so you can go a different direction, be efficient. 
as opposed to keep on trying to push that big rock up the hill. Yeah. So it, it sounds like keeping the patient at the center of the innovation process is really key to, to success and having an impact on patients. I, I think it is. And I, and I heard, I've heard all, all of the folks I mentioned, Julio and, and, uh, and Paul and, and Tom say that, and I never, you know, it took me a while to really get it, but they, they're visionaries. Uh, they are visionaries and they're, and they're in their passion for really in their careers, making an impact on patients. Again, the companies they created along the way were the vehicles to do that. And so keeping the patient at the center, which isn't, which isn't so easy all the time because you kind of get caught in uh, the IP or the clinical trial or, but you, if you keep it at the center, the best and remind yourself that I think you're, that will lead you, I think, to the most successful path. That is a fantastic point and a great place to end on. Todd, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. And we wish you the best of luck at Edwards. Thanks, you guys, very much. Appreciate it. <laughs>